How are we doing, guys? All right. It's good to see you guys. Uh, just to let you know, the 8 o'clock got after it this morning, so I'm expecting a lot from you. I don't know if it was the 40-degree day yesterday or what, but they were ready to go. Uh, my name is Ian. If we haven't met, I am the family ministry pastor, and so it's a joy to be with you guys this morning as we continue Revelation. And I'm actually really excited to see all of you guys here this morning. I know last week's message was a little challenging, a little tough, maybe offended some of, of you guys, and so it's good that you came back anyway. Uh, we're glad to have you as uh, we keep rolling through uh, Revelation, and because last week was tough, right? Like we looked at the letters to the seven churches. And we looked at how these seven churches, most of them weren't doing too hot, right? Uh, five of the seven uh, got rebuked pretty uh, severely. Only two uh, didn't get any rebuke. And they, they got rung through the ringer a little bit. Like you hear Jesus say things like, hey, if you don't shape up, if things don't change, I'm going to remove your lampstand. Like I'm going to remove your right to be a church. I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. I'm going to come like a thief against you. Like these are not things that you want the savior of the world to say to you, right? And so they heard all these really challenging things. And I think it's really important that we remember that this was a letter that was written to them. And so imagine that you're them and you just sat through the reading of, the, of uh, those first three chapters all at one time. And now you're probably starting to think, okay, I've been told not to compromise, I have been told to conquer, and I don't really know what to do with that. Like, you could start to imagine that they're starting to think, all right, that's good and all, Jesus. You want me to conquer? You don't want me to compromise? But it's like, have you seen the world that I live in? Do you know what the emperor is doing to Christians right now? Do you know the sin that is so enticing? Like, do you know all these material things that I could be having right now? And we start to see that maybe they start wondering in questions like, God, how am I even supposed to conquer? How am I supposed to not compromise in this life? How am I supposed to remain faithful in the midst of what is going on? And maybe you guys can think some of the same things sometimes. Like I know I can, like even just sitting in here last week and hearing the sermon on compromise, I just start thinking through, it's like, man, what ways have I been compromising? What ways have I not been faithful to God? What ways uh, would he rebuke me personally? And that wasn't a fun thing to think about, but it was important. And it got me to the point where I was like, man, how do I even do this? Like, how do I remain faithful? How do I not compromise? And maybe you guys are kind of in the same spot this morning. And you look back at your week and you start looking at like, man, how do I even obey Jesus? How can I even walk in obedience? How can I even remain faithful? How do I not compromise my faith to this world that is always begging me to? How can I remain faithful when this world is so faithless and culture is doing whatever culture is doing, politics is doing whatever politics is doing, and it's just ruining everything going on around me? How do I remain faithful to that? And really the question behind that is, it's like, how do I worship God in the midst of this world? Because every compromising issue is a worship issue, right? Like every time you compromise, you are saying, hey, I'm choosing to worship this over God. I'm choosing to listen to culture instead of my creator. I'm choosing to do all these things instead of what God has called me to do. And our compromise is actually a worship issue. And so the real question is like, how can we really worship God in this world that we live in? 
How can we really worship God in this world that we live in? And this morning, uh, that's really where Revelation is going to be taking us. We're going to jump into Revelation 4 in just a second, and we get another vision uh, that John receives. And this vision, it's a beautiful vision of the throne room of heaven. And really what we see happening is this isn't just a vision of what's going to happen someday. We'll get to some of those things in a bit. But what we see right away in the throne room is what's currently happening. It's like a reality that we can't see with our own eyes, but something that's actually going on right now. Like anyone seen Stranger Things in here? Anyone watch Stranger Things? No, a few people want to admit to watching Dungeons and Dragons in church. Okay, come on, guys. Sinners. Uh, just kidding. Uh, I mean, you are a sinner. But uh, in, in, in Stranger Things, there's what's called the upside down, where it's this alternate reality that is taking place and affecting the reality that the characters are actually living in. They can't see it, but they feel the effects of it. And it's there. It's real. And that's kind of what we're going to see from John, that... This vision of heaven that we're going to enter into this morning, it's not just some far out thing. It's a reality that is taking place. And when we see this reality, when we see who is in this reality and what is taking place in this reality, man, it changes everything. And going to be honest with you over the next couple chapters and for the rest of uh, the letter of Revelation, uh, there's going to be some weird stuff talked about. There's going to be some weird images, um, some imagery that we'll see, some weird symbols. Uh, it's okay. Like we'll get through it together. Uh, and I don't want you to get so distracted by the weird stuff that you miss the important stuff. Okay. So we're going to focus on the important stuff. We'll talk about the weird stuff a little bit, but we're going to focus on the important stuff as we go through this. You guys ready? Let's do it. Revelation chapter four says, after this, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. So this is just the introduction to the vision that John is going to have. He sees this door to heaven. He hears Jesus, uh, which we see described, his voice is described similarly in Revelation one, calling to John saying, hey, come up here. Let me show you what's going to happen. And then at once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And so I want to pause there for a second because we see this vision. And but before John has shown anything that is going to happen in the future, before he's shown any stuff about end times, any apocalyptic stuff, what does he see? What is he showing? The throne. He's shown the throne of God and God on the throne. And the thing about it is John doesn't even try to describe God like he describes Jesus in chapter one. Like all that he says is like of Carnelian and Jasper. It's like two precious jewels. He's like saying, I can't really describe it, but just know that even in heaven, God is so set apart. And I think it's on purpose that before all of the apocalyptic stuff, before all this end times things that we're going to get into later, before the breaking of seals and scrolls and all that fun stuff, we see the first thing that John's attention is drawn to is the throne of God and the one who is seated upon it. And the one who is seated upon it can't even be described. Like even in heaven, like get your best picture of heaven right now. Even in heaven, God stands out. Even in heaven, God stands out. And that's the first thing that John sees. And then we continue. It says, around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. 
And around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with gold crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creatures like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. That's kind of an overwhelming picture, isn't it? Like we see this image of God on the throne who is so set apart that John can't even describe him. And then we see all of these things around the throne. And like I said, there's a lot of imagery and things in here that might be kind of hard to understand. We're just going to fly through those real quick just uh, to kind of get a better understanding of what we're seeing here. We see at first, we see a rainbow around the throne with the appearance of emerald. And this rainbow often uh, is symbolizing of God's mercy and his faithfulness uh, towards humanity. And see, we, so we see his faithfulness and mercy on display. Then we see 24 thrones with elders on these 24 thrones. And there's a little bit of debate about who the elders are, what their purpose is, um, I think and a lot of scholars would also agree that this uh, 24 elders is to represent the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 uh, disciples of Jesus. And ultimately what it does is it represents the whole of God's redeemed people. And so we take God's people in the Old Testament and God's people in the New Testament and we see a picture of God's redeemed people. And the thing that I think is really sweet about what we see here is that they're sitting on thrones. That they're ruling and reigning along with God here, right? And which just is really sweet because that means that Jesus' words are true, right? And chapters 2 and 3, he ends the letters with, those who conquer, you'll reign with me. You'll rule with me. And so we see that actually happening, that God's people get God's promises. And it's a really sweet picture there. And then we see lightning and rumblings and thunders coming from the throne of God, showing God's might, his power, and his judgment. Then we see seven torches, uh, which represent the seven spirits and which Michael talked about a couple weeks ago, represent the fullness of the Holy Spirit, the sevenfold spirit. And then we see this sea of glass. And there's a lot of different opinions on what the sea of glass is. I'll give you a couple. Like one of them is uh, how the sea in the Old Testament can sometimes refer to evil and chaos. And so they say there's this evil and chaos, but it's like a glass sea in front of the throne of God. Saying that, hey, there's evil and chaos in the world, but before God, he's got it all in control. It's not chaos to him. He's in charge of it. He's in control of it. And the, another uh, thing people can think is that it's like this opaque kind of see-through barrier uh, from uh, heaven to earth. Where God sees down over his creation and rules over his creation. And we can just dimly see God through it. And so either way, what is really important to note from that is that we see God on his throne with his creation before him in complete control of it, not shaken by it, not disturbed by it. And so that's what we see so far. And then we get to the really weird stuff, right? Like we get to these creatures, uh, like you see them described. And around the throne, on each side of the throne are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. They have a lion. They're like a lion, an ox, a man's face, an eagle in flight. They have six wings full of eyes all around and within. 
Like, I would uh, encourage you to read that description to your kids and tell them to draw it and see what kind of nightmares they have. Could be kind of fun. Um, but it's just weird, right? But we see these creatures, and ultimately what we can gather from these creatures that is, is it represents all of God's created beings. Like, it represents all of God's creation, and we're going to see later that it ultimately bows down before him, right? But these creatures, these, these four creatures representing uh, all of creation. And so that's what we see happening in the throne room. That's the description that John gives us of this throne room in heaven. And I want, I want you guys to kind of go back, kind of skim through that passage again, and see if you notice anything. Because there's something that is happening in this passage. Um, there are two words that get repeated more than any other. You guys catch on to that? It's the throne. Like, look at it. It says, um, the one who sat there, meaning on the throne, had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow. Around the throne were 24 elders. From the throne came flashes of lightning. Before the throne were burning seven torches of fire. Before the throne was the sea of glass-like crystal, and around the throne and on each side of the throne are these four living creatures. John tells us a lot that is in the throne room, but what, what's the main thing in the throne room? The throne. And more importantly, the one seated on the throne. You see, there might be other things happening in the throne room, but the focus is on the one who is on the throne. That's what is at the center of all this. All these other things are peripheral. All these other things are happening. But the thing that is at the center is the throne and the one on the throne, God Almighty. And I don't think it's any accident that this is written the way that it is. That this is what John sees and this is what John writes to these churches. Because these churches were compromising left and right. They weren't being faithful. They, they were being pulled aside by other things. And I think maybe John is saying, hey, maybe you're compromising your faith because your focus is in the wrong place. Maybe you're so focused on these other things and you need to get your eyes on the throne. You need to see the one who is seated on the throne above it all. Like stop getting distracted by everything else going around. Like, have you guys ever been distracted by anything when you should have been focused on something else? A couple of you? Yeah, we all have. Uh, anyone do it while driving? No one wants to admit to a couple of you are. <laughs> yeah, uh, if my wife was here, she would have said amen there. Uh, she claims that I am the most distracted driver she knows, which is probably true. Um, kind of uh, just an example of that, I guess, is we had just gotten back from our honeymoon seven and a half years ago. Uh, land at DFW Airport. And we are hungry, as you would be after being in a plane for a while, because they don't give you, like, snacks and food anymore. Uh, and so we're hungry, and uh, so like any normal person, I pull out my phone, and what do you think I type in? Taco Bell, right? Like, you already know. I got Taco Bell pulled up. I open up Google Maps, type it in. Uh, the only problem is I had already started driving as I was doing this. And my wife, her famous line is, can I help you with something? And my answer is always no. <laughs> um, I should have said yes. Because as I'm typing in Taco Bell, I hit go. I realize as I look up that I am not turning like I should be turning. And I turn sharp and I pop the side of uh, my wife's car up onto the curb. And I cause some pretty bad damage to the side of her car. That was a terrible way to start married life together. 
and the most expensive Taco Bell trip I had ever been on. Uh, but I got distracted, right? Like my focus wasn't on the right place. My focus should have been on the road. But instead, it was on Taco Bell, and which is honestly more common of an occurrence than it should be. Um, but my focus was on the wrong place. And so I became a bad driver. I didn't watch where I was supposed to go. And some of you guys can relate to that, right? With driving, but then maybe with other things in life. Where you start looking at life and you're like, man, you, I get so focused on my job that I fail to worship Jesus. I get so focused on making people happy that I forget to worship Jesus. I get so focused on parenting that I forget who is in charge of all things. I get so focused on culture and the way that it's going that I lose sight and I don't fix my eyes on the throne of God. And so in this vision, in this reality that is currently happening. God is on his throne and John's eyes are just fixed to it. It's the focus of this entire vision is the throne of God. And maybe this morning, you guys need to make that your focus. You need to get your focus off of the little life that we live here and get it focused on the throne of a big God. You need to take your focus on what is distracting you and causing compromise in your life and put it on the creator. So guys, this morning, turn your gaze. Turn your gaze. Get it off of the world around you. Stop being so focused on what culture is doing. Stop being so focused on the way the world is going. Stop being so focused on the sin that is just bidding for your attention and your affections. And maybe you need to turn your eyes and you need to focus. And you need to focus on the throne of God. Where these living creatures are bowing down before him. Because like this, in this vision, it's not just to show us what is in the throne room, right? Like we've seen what's in the throne room. We've got God's throne. We've got some, a rainbow. We've got some elders. We've got some creatures. We've got some lightning and thunder and torches and a sea. This isn't just to show us what is in the throne room. But this is to show us like what is happening in the throne room. And we see that as we keep going. Verses 8 through 11. It says, And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. This vision doesn't just show us what is in the throne room, but what is happening in the throne room. And what we get is this beautiful picture of real worship. That these elders and these creatures, that they're bowing down before God and singing praises to him who is on the throne. You see, they've seen God for who he is and now they worship him for who he is. 
And we get this picture of who God is. We see these characteristics in the worship that they give him. They say, holy, holy, holy. They know that God is holy, that he is completely set apart, that even in heaven, he is so separate from everything else. It's the Lord God Almighty. They know that he is almighty. They know that he is sovereign. They know that he is powerful. They know that he is in charge of all things, who was and is and is to come. They know that he is eternal. They know that nothing created him and that all things were created through him. And so they worship him. And then the elders join in and they say, worthy are you. When we talk about worthy here, and we're going to talk about worthy in a little bit too. It's this idea of being qualified. They say, God, you are qualified. Our Lord and God, you are qualified to receive glory and honor and power. And this is why they say that for you created all things. And by your will, they existed and were created. They say you're worthy to receive all honor and praise because you chose to create all things. You didn't have to. You weren't swayed into doing it. You chose by your own good purpose to create all things. And not only does he create things, he sustains them perfectly. Because that's what's happening in the throne room. And that, remember, that's just not what's happening someday. That's happening today, right now. In the throne room of God, elders and creatures are casting their crowns before God Almighty, worshiping him. They're singing to him. They're telling him how good he is, how holy he is, how mighty he is. That's the reality that we see in heaven right now. And that's the reality that should be shaping our life here. That we should see Jesus. We should see God on his throne in charge of all things. And this should lead us to worship him. Like you want to know how you can live a life without compromise? How you can live a life that is filled with faith? a life full of worship, you see God on his throne. You see God in control. So that when the world comes at you, when the world tempts you, when situations come up and you're like, man, I don't know how I can stay faithful here. You get your eyes off what is going on here on earth and you get your eyes focused on the throne room of God where God is seated in complete control of all things. And you worship him. When I say worship, I, like, yes, sing to him. Yes, we love singing to him. And I love hearing you guys sing to him. Like one of my favorite things on a Sunday is being able to worship with you guys through song. And sometimes you guys just sing so loud and beautiful that I just like close my eyes and I let your singing minister to my heart too. But I'm not just talking about worship and singing because there's, there's like a posture that the elders take here. And that posture is one of bowing down. And by bowing down, they're saying, we submit our life to you. You are in charge of us. So when you rightly see God, you're going to worship God. And you're not just going to sing, you're going to bow down. Because God is worthy of more than just your song. He's worthy of your life. He's worthy of more than just you singing to him. He's worthy of you living for him. And that is an act of worship. Guys, God is on his throne, worthy of all worship and honor and praise. And who else could there be greater to submit your life to? Your spouse? If you've been married for more than a minute, you know that's not true. 
yourself. And you can't even floss every night. How are you supposed to control things? Right? That's a personal one for me. (laughs) Who else is there to be worthy of all of our worship, honor, and praise in our life? Only God who is on the throne. And you want to not compromise in this culture, you need to see what's really happening. You need to see what's happening in heaven right now, that God is on his throne in control of all things being worshiped. That's the God that you need to see. But we need to keep going because that's not all that we see happening here in the throne room. We'll keep going in Revelation chapter five. Uh, We see more happening here in the throne room. It says, then I saw in the right hand of him who is seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. So we're back in the throne room. We're back focused on God where our attention should be. And we see that God has a scroll and he's holding the scroll. And we'll get more into the scroll next week. Uh, we'll see some breaking of seals. And that's when all the fun stuff happens. That's why y'all are here probably. Uh, but we'll get into that more next week. But we see this scroll. What you need to know about now is that it represents God's redemptive plan. That this scroll represents God's plan of redemption. And he is holding it. But guess what? It's sealed. It's not opened. It's not being carried out. And so we see this scroll is sealed. And then it continues. It says, And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. So John sees God have the scroll in his hand sealed up and no one is able to take it. No one is able to open it. And John just weeps, which I've never wept for not being able to read something, but John apparently does. He sees that no one can take this scroll and he weeps loudly because he knows what this scroll represents. He knows that it's God's redemptive plan. And if no one can take it, how is God's redemption going to come to earth? How is all things going to be restored unto him? How are all things going to be made right? John has seen the way that the earth is. He has seen what is happening in culture and he's seen heaven. He's like, how is this supposed to intersect? Like, how is this going to come to pass? No one is worthy to take the scroll. Like, imagine if the world that we live in was the best that it was ever going to be. Man, what, cause, what greater cause for weeping would there be? So John is distraught. He's weeping because there's a scroll that can't be opened. But then something happens in verse 5. It says, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Because this is the only command we see in this chapter, right? It says, weep no more and behold the lion. He's saying, I know you're sad. You should be sad if this were reality. But guess what? There is one who is worthy. There is one who can take the scroll. There is one who can carry out God's plan of redemption. And it is the lion who conquered all things. You guys could amen there. Like, that's a good thing. 
He's saying, weep no more. Behold, look, the son, look, the lamb who is conquered. And because he has conquered, he is worthy to take the scroll. So it continues. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. As we see the lion who is conquered. And we see that when John turns around, he's told, behold the lion. When he turns around, he doesn't see a lion. What does he see? A lamb. A lamb standing as though it had been slaughtered. And can dead things stand? No. So that means the lamb has what? Risen. The lamb is alive and he's standing with seven horns, which represent power and might and seven number of perfection. So perfect power and might. And with the seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, mean full, completely full of the spirit. And this resurrected lamb, this conquering lion takes the scroll. God gives him the scroll saying, you are worthy to carry out my plan of redemption on this world. And he gives it to Jesus. Because that's the Jesus that we see here. A Jesus who has been given all authority, who stands the once slain, now resurrected in all power, who has conquered all things. That's the Jesus that we see here. That's the Jesus that John is told to behold. That's the Jesus that he looks to. And my question for you guys is, is that the Jesus that you see? Like if I were to ask you, hey, picture Jesus. What do you picture? Do you picture white Jesus with blue eyes wearing a bathrobe? Or eight pounds, six ounce baby Jesus? Like, is that the Jesus you're picturing? Or do you picture a lamb who is slaughtered, now standing? A lion who is conquered in all power and might, given handed the keys to the kingdom, giving handed the keys to have all authority and dominion on earth. Is that the Jesus that you see? Is that the Jesus that you behold, that you look to? Because I think so often we can have the wrong view of Jesus. And like even, we can even picture like Jesus on the cross and we're quick to picture Jesus on the cross and it's a beautiful thing. He died for our sins, but we're so quick to picture him on the cross, yet we're slow to picture him on the throne. We see him as the God and the Jesus who saves us, but don't want to see him as the God who has sovereign authority over us. But guys, you can't have one without the other. Here we see this picture of Jesus, the once slain, now risen and standing in complete victory, holding all authority and power. That's the Jesus that we see. And is that the one that you see? Is that the one that you keep your eyes fixed on? And you know, there's a really easy way to tell Because if that's the Jesus that you see, then your response is going to be what happens next. It says, and when he had taken the scroll, 
the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed for people, ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbering myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Guys, if you see Jesus like this, you're going to worship him like this. If you see Jesus as the lion, the conquering lion, the risen lamb, the one who holds all power and authority, your response is to bow down and worship. And if that's not your response, then you aren't beholding Jesus the way you should. If your response to seeing this is not worship, you're not beholding the right Jesus. And can I tell you something? If you're not beholding the right Jesus and worshiping Jesus, you're going to live a compromising life. You're going to have your focus drifting left and right all the time. Things of this world are going to tempt you. They're going to sway you. They're going to pull your attention and your affection. You want to know the key to not having that happen? Behold Jesus. See him, worship him for who he is. That's really what these two chapters are all about, right? Like in chapter four, we see God on his throne and people worship him because they know who he is. They've seen who he is. Here we see Jesus, the conquering king, and people worship him and bow down before him. Because all this comes down to, we need to clearly see who God is. You want to not compromise in this life. You want to remain faithful. You need to clearly see who God is. And as you clearly see who God is, you're going to live a life of worship to him. You could say it like this. Clearly seeing Jesus leads to the uncompromising worship of Jesus. Clearly seeing Jesus leads to the uncompromising worship of Jesus. So when you start to look at your own life, where are you making compromises? Where are you failing to worship? Where is your attention getting shifted and directed at other things, lesser things? The call this morning is lift your gaze. Behold Jesus. See him. See him on the throne, victorious over all things, holding our future in his hand. And as you see him as that, worship him. Worship him because you know he is worthy of all honor and praise because he has conquered all things. 
That's what we're called to do this morning. And church, we can be a conquering people. You can be a conquering person. Not because you're really good, quite the opposite actually. Not because you can work really hard at it, just pull up your bootstraps, roll up your sleeves, get to work, let's not compromise. No, the way that you can live a non-compromising life is a life lived in worship to God because you have clearly seen him. And so this week, that's all I want you to do. I want you to fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your gaze on him. See him for who he really is. Like if you have a really bad week this week, fix your eyes on Jesus because he has conquered all things. He is in control of all things. He's making all things new. Fix your eyes on him. If you have a really good week, fix your eyes on Jesus knowing that he gives good gifts. And that the best gift of all is that we get to be with him forever. So no matter how good of a week you have, you can fix your eyes on Jesus knowing that he is better. And as you fix your eyes on him, as you gaze upon him and you see him for who he really is, you worship him. Like you worship him now as we get ready to sing and take communion. You worship him at work on Monday. You worship him at the dinner table on Tuesday. When you go to your campus on Thursday. When you're in the break room on Friday and out with your friends on Saturday, you live a life worshiping Jesus because you have seen him for who he is. Because that's what we want to start doing. That's what we want to continue doing. That's what we want to define our life. And so this morning, we're going to continue by entering into a time of communion. We're going to keep singing and worshiping through song. And so as you come and take communion, I want, you to, I want you to picture and remember Jesus. Remember him as the lamb who was slain for your sins, who was slain for your forgiveness. But in the very same breath, see him as the Jesus who has conquered all things, the lion who has conquered sin, Satan, and death. And fix your eyes on him. Remember him as you take communion. And then after you do that, guys, I want you to sing. Like, we just read the best worship service we could possibly read in Scripture. We see, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. From every tribe and language and people and nation, you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Amen. Guys, that is the song in heaven right now. And it's a song that we get to join in singing. And we don't have to wait till eternity to sing praises to God like this. We can join in now. And so as you take communion, remember Jesus, who was slain for your sins, who has conquered sin, Satan, and death. And as you do that, let's sing and worship the God who is worthy of it. Amen? Let's pray.
God, you are the only one who is worthy of our affections, who is worthy of our worship. We so quickly get our eyes fixed on other things, so quick to compromise. And God, this morning, may we fix our eyes on you, the creator and sustainer of all things, the forgiver of our sins, the risen lamb, the conquering lion. May we fix our eyes on you and may that fuel our worship of you now and the rest of this week. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.